like to thank everybody for being here this evening. Um, in fact, uh, in particular, I'd like to thank the Institute of Politics for organizing this, along with the Shorenstein Center, uh, the Government 2.0 PIC, Alana, the Asian American Policy Review, and the Berkman Center. So in fact, if there were three representatives from each of those groups here, I think that's about us. <laughs> Uh, what we would like to talk about tonight is the fact that governments have used technology for a very long time and have been central to the development of many of the things that have happened, but there's many people who think that it really hasn't been that big or that good a set of things that have emerged. Uh, there's a claim that we're on the verge of something very new now that could be quite different. That's what we want to explore. And we want to explore it with some very interesting people because they're not just thinking about what's happening. These are the people that are making the things happen, happen. So I'd like to introduce first Anish Chopra, who uh, you may know and you should know and you will know is our nation's first chief technology officer. He looks not so much at the operations of information technology in government as at the innovations that information technology might bring to government and the larger society. Next, we have Anne Margulies, who has had a very interesting career in politically significant environments, beginning at Harvard University in the provost's office. <laughs> <laughs> and then going to MIT, where she was the head of the Open Courseware Initiative that has really gone all around the globe and done some amazing things. And now is the chief information officer of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And third, I would like to introduce Terry Takai, who had a career in technology in the Ford Motor Company before she began with the state of Michigan and took the state at a time that it was under great stress and won for it major awards on what they did with information technology and did something that many other jurisdictions are just now coming to do, which is everybody has talked about consolidation and shared services and economies of scale. Michigan, probably because there was more pain earlier, has done a lot of that. Having done it in Michigan, she is now the chief information officer of Governor Schwarzenegger in California. So we have some experience here, and what we plan to do is to talk a bit about two questions and then open it up to your questions. But our questions are, what's really new that needs to be taken advantage of? What are the opportunities here? And then what's new that are risky? What are the things we should avoid now? So let me turn to you, Anish, first. So on the, on the question, first of all, thank you for having me. And it's a pleasure to be back. I graduated in 1997, so it's a I like being on the other side of the uh, uh, side, and here I am. Still just a child. Uh, <laughs> I, I would say that there, there are three uh, streams coming together uh, that, that would be new. Uh, stream number one uh, are the emergence of these new technology platforms that are essentially democratizing access to some pretty cool capabilities that are changing the way we interact with our government. The second uh, stream, I think, is we're operating in an environment of fiscal constraint. The demands of what we want out of our public sector relative to the capabilities of our resources to fund them means that we have no choice but to look for new and creative and innovative approaches to these difficult problems. But three, uh, at least at the federal level, I believe there's a 
very important point, and that is the notion of leadership. When you have a president who is committed to the principles of openness and transparency and has created an environment where there are people who are appointed at very senior levels uh, with responsibility on these issues, it takes a lot of what had been there historically and puts it into some structure mm -hmm. that can be more thoughtfully adjudicated. It's, it's a new environment uh, in terms of clearly an older population and President Obama is clearly a representative of the new generation who takes this stuff very seriously. What did you mean about platforms? What, so what's a platform in this context? So in this context, uh, a platform is essentially a, a, a resource that is relatively easy to access but could democratize information in ways that you couldn't imagine. So a simple one that particularly interesting for me, uh, we, uh, we've had a long struggle in how to process the backlog for immigration applications, right? It just takes a long time. And you would have a political debate year after year about shrink it, make it faster, better, faster, cheaper, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Some of the emerging platforms are now uh, such that we can, at virtually no marginal cost, publish, as we have done, the average processing time for each uh, benefit a uh, uh, application form by each of the 57 or the 70 or so field offices. So you could now benchmark for the first time Boston's performance against DC. The platform was essentially the, uh, uh, the, the, the capabilities of the internet borne out on our, our, our data systems. So we could actually produce this information as a data file. Now, how many people go and log into that data file? Probably nobody. But what's new is that the platform enables a third party to consume that data file and produce it in a way you'd never imagined. Probably the, fool the silliest thing that I have, I have on my iPhone, the Federal Register iPhone app that a university professor made at George Mason because we published the Federal Register in XML format. Mm -hmm. Now I have much simpler access to the Federal Register. I do not read that every day and I'm in government, but I look at it on my iPhone to figure out what's hot and new. So the platform made it the technological feasibility of a simple publication that could then be democratized, mashed up and reused for better, better, better. So in other words, it, it standards not only the way TCP IP made the internet a standard for communication, but by putting XML data out, you've got other parties that are creating real value like the iPhone app uh, for this. And what do you see? Uh, first of all, let me also say thank you for having me here. It's an honor to be here, particularly flanked by um, such prestigious colleagues. That would be Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I'll build off a little of what Anish just said, but try to bring it a little bit more up close to the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean to a state, and a relatively small state um, like ours? I think you ended by saying uh, leadership, but I think I would start by saying leadership. I think really one of, the, one of the most significant things that is different is that we in this state have a governor much like President Obama who really gets it. You know, he understands not only that technology was important for him in becoming governor, he would be the first one to say that he would not be the governor of the Commonwealth if it were not for technology. Just about four years ago, uh, when he announced that he was gonna run for governor, he was unknown. No one knew who he was, and there was a clear front runner. Mm -hmm who uh, was very well known in the state. And the reason he won by such a decisive um, amount was because he used technology to get his message out. One of the reasons, just one of the reasons, but a significant reason. But he gets technology as a way to communicate and engage. Mm -hmm. 
We haven't totally figured that out in government, and he would also be the first to say that it has been a challenge trying to apply what was so successful on the campaign trail to governing. The second um, thing that I think the governor really gets and understand, and his leadership makes a big difference, is that technology does play an incredibly important role and underpins everything that we do, that we do in government. And it's incredibly important uh, that we invest in technology to be able to gain the kinds of efficiencies that Terry was able to achieve in Michigan. Mm -hmm. And we're doing the same thing here in the Commonwealth. We have huge a project consolidation. huge project, <laughs> huge consolidation project right now uh, across the state government and the Commonwealth. But he understands, you know, he, we, we tend to talk more about investing in roads and bridges. Mm -hmm. We talk about the deferred maintenance in roads and bridges. We've been suffering from some of the same deferred maintenance and technology and is absolutely as important for running the government. Mm -hmm. the, the third area that uh, our governor recognizes is very important is the role that technology plays in improving the quality of life in the Commonwealth for all of our citizens and the role that technology plays in economic development. So again, many of the things that Anish talks about are top priorities uh, for our state as well, and that is expanding broadband across the state, particularly in the unserved areas, moving towards smart highways and eventually smart grids, and uh, particularly important here in the Commonwealth um, is continuing to be in the forefront and a leader in implementing healthcare reform. And uh, we're also uh, very fortunate to have some of the nation's best thought leaders in the Commonwealth around healthcare reform and also in how to set up the technology and the infrastructure that's needed to support that. Both you and Anish picked up on leadership um, and to one individual. Uh, one of the observations made about this problem over time is it's been specialized to the CIOs and a lot of other people who need to get involved in these haven't been. How do you grade leadership as a broader phenomenon? Uh, is there a next generation coming in or is it still such a big difficulty getting department heads, line managers engaged in this stuff? Uh, it's not universal across uh, the leadership uh, at the state. It makes a big difference that the governor gets it mm -hmm. because that certainly means that his cabinet mm -hmm. and others are paying more attention to it. Um, but I do think one of the next big drivers is truly the next generation mm -hmm. of leaders who do get it. And the, the students who are graduating now who are all born digitally are going to be uh, expecting the government to um, interact with them the way that the businesses do, businesses do in the way that so many other things do. Mm -hmm. So I think there, there's most definitely going to be a big driver coming from uh, citizens, mm -hmm. this next generation. Two pictures, Terry, of, of what's new and what's new in the way that we ought to take advantage of it. Um, what do you see? Let me pick up actually on the last conversation around the leadership question because I think there's a, a dynamic that we're starting to see. Um, I think clearly, you know, as, as Anne has expressed, uh, you know, there's certainly a lot more interest in the technology, but I think one of the things, that's, two things are happening as a result of governors and, and certainly as Anish knows it, uh, at his level, at the president's level, is that the pressure is actually now coming because if you have a governor that gets the fact, they don't understand the nuances of the technology, 
They just know that driving change means that technology is a large component of that. And that in and of itself is putting an interesting pressure on, if you will, that middle management group, mm -hmm. or what we lovingly used to call the kind of layer of clay, where <laughs> you really have to get through that group to get to the innovators that are sometimes buried in the organization. And so there's an increasingly um, strong amount of pressure on that group, and they're struggling. They really are struggling. I mean, they're sort of like, well, should I be blogging? Should I be tweeting? And if I tweet, what does that mean? And how does that actually change the dynamics of what I do? And so I think that you know a lot of folks that have been in, in public policy, that have been in public administration for a long time, are really struggling with what does it mean? I know I have to do something, but I don't know exactly how to make that happen. And we're just at the beginnings of seeing a lot of this change in public uh, employees that have been around for quite a while starting to roll off and do something different. So I think the leadership challenge is something that's going to be um, you know, with us for a while. I think. The second piece of it, interestingly enough, is that with our budget deficits, we're asked and we're really being pushed to look at structural change. Um, for those of you that read any newspaper, you know the California difficulties hmm. from a budget deficit standpoint. I actually probably get more information out of the Wall Street Journal than necessarily the Sacramento Bee. Um, and so our numbers are pretty well known out there. And, and the struggle is that I think um, that certainly all of the advice to California state government is this isn't about tweaking around the edges. It's around structural change in the way that we do government. And so with that, there's becoming an increasing uh, understanding that some of that structural change is embedded in the old technologies that we use. If any of you have heard of the unemployment insurance issues that California's had to try to cope with unprecedented unemployment with 30-year-old systems to just get checks out. Now there's a recognition that that's all embedded in the technology. And to make it better, you have to change that technology. So there are those two leadership components that I think are dramatically changing. The third thing that I think is really helping, although it's not necessarily permeated yet into state government, and that is the strong pressure and the leadership that is coming from Anish and from uh, the folks at the federal government side that is really starting to, first of all, form a much stronger bond between what the federal government does in technology and how that rolls down to what the states are doing. Um, clearly, the open government movement is something that you know, has really started there, but it's really been a partnership, and I think Anish, you know, you and Vivek Kundra and many others have really forged that in a way that we haven't had before. Um, there was sort of a uh, chasm, if you will, before between what happened at the federal government was federal government and that didn't roll down to what we're doing at the states. And so I think the opportunity is to really take advantage of that uh, as opposed to being worried about it or resisting it, but it's really to say, you know, with that kind of cooperation, how do we really move forward? And then how do we actually bring that down to the local government level? Because clearly, you know, that's the piece of government that citizens really interact with probably even more than they do with Anisha or Anne or myself. And so there's, a, I think, a change in the way that we can really present government at all levels. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that cooperation is really going to be important going forward.
So if there's a lot of pain with the finances and they're demanding serious change, not just incremental stuff, and there's a lot of capacity with the new technology and some capacity with the new leadership, then there are positive things that might be done. What do we need to worry about? What are the things we need to avoid if we're actually going to turn the current situation into good things rather than bad things? The, uh, the, the single biggest trade-off that, that is going to either see the success or the failure of these activities is the degree to which the risk and loss of control changes the behavior of how agencies and governments respond. So it, it is one thing for us to engage the public in new and creative ways with uh, uh, the blogs or the, the Twitter accounts, but to fully embrace the notion that if I want to improve, as today the First Lady announced, if you follow the news, the Apps for Healthy Kids competition, is an example of the risks and the opportunities. Uh, in traditional context, we've identified a problem. Childhood obesity is growing exponentially. Uh, government would like to help play a role. If we had all the money in the world, we might fund a massive national movement campaign or whatever to get people to eat healthier, but we don't have them, so there's no constraint. So the question of control, what we do have is a database of the thousand most commonly eaten foods at the Department of Agriculture. So you type in bagel with cream cheese, and it'll tell you in the algorithms that you're consuming 65 excess calories. So what the First Lady said today was that we're going to publish this raw data on our website, data.gov. It's a platform. Mm -hmm. And we're going to offer a $40,000 prize to the video game developer who incorporates that nutritional information in a video game that is geared towards young kids, or an application for parents who are looking to make a healthier meal. We've lost control because I don't know what the actual end product will look like. And some of that may be uncomfortable for people because there may be some message contained in the, in the video game that, mm -hmm. that, that somehow would be by extension of their contribution to the program is default and endorsement of the government. So our willingness to accept the risk that, that this ecosystem can, can commercialize, if you will, that raw data in new and creative mm -hmm. ways to convince kids uh, to eat healthier, we, we've ceded the control over that entire experience by, by liberating it. We've also done it at a ridiculously mm -hmm. cheap price. Mm -hmm. And how people are comfortable or uncomfortable with that decision is going to measure <clears throat> the success. So here, the First Lady is saying this. So the Department of Agriculture is pretty comfortable that they're willing mm -hmm. to take this move. I don't know how that story repeats itself when you don't have the personal engagement with the the principles, and I, there's the tension. I, I've heard some uh, people talk about the following in terms of releasing government data, uh, which you're suggesting is a real resource. We haven't taken much advantage of it. The transparency that's there, the partnerships with folks to get video games, all of that's very interesting. But then somebody pointed out that the Washington Post has more technology to look at Washington, D.C. data that's been put out there, and the incentives will be gotcha stories. So to what extent is it a real risk that will slow down a lot of these things, uh, that people are worried about who gets access to all this data and, and how they use it? How do you handle that? This is the, that's the leadership question. We, we faced this directly. The president said on recovery.gov, we're going to publish everything raw. You can download the files from recovery.gov in whatever format you want and create whatever other application you want. And by the way, some of that was in the front page of the papers. There's an unnamed district in Arizona that doesn't exist that was in the, a mistake in the data file that someone had uploaded. <clears throat> so 
uh, at the one of the holiday parties, a member of Congress uh, 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 who historically had been but critical on these issues sort of confided and said, what would have I rather had, that you not publish the data? Mm -hmm. I'd much rather that you publish and we create the comfort that that information's gonna come in and over time it'll get better, else 50 years from now, that database that had not been made public would still report that unnamed mm -hmm. district and all the research statistics published off the data would be wrong and inaccurate. So if, the, if there's leadership willing to accept that transparency mm -hmm. means you don't get all the great information, what is the single most uh, courageous act on transparency? I would have argued there's lots, but the one that has caught the attention, the president decided to release the White House visitor logs. Mm -hmm. Everybody <coughs> who comes to see me is now published. Every appointment that's made, you know who came, when they entered, and when they left. Every single person who's come to see me, go ahead and look at it. I've already had people talk about, you know, the CEO of this health insurance company came, and what was that? Was that wrong and whatnot? <clears throat> that is the president's mm -hmm. judgment, that I'm willing to put it out there, except the fact that there's going to be a tax on the specifics of what is or is not there. Yet he chose to make that decision. And therefore, the organization says, well, if he's willing to make that decision, maybe at the Department of Transportation, I'll release the raw data on infant car safety usability data mm -hmm. so that next time uh, my buddy in the audience initiative is getting ready for his kid, you're gonna buy a new car seat, you get that government data that had heretofore been in a file cabinet and inaccessible. So we wanna avoid the problem of not being willing to take some of the risks that are there with these new things, but the, the things are there if yes. we can explore them. And what, do you, what should we avoid? What are the well, I have to talk about to? open data. Okay. <laughs> I love all things open. And um, if you go to the uh, White House website that Anish just mentioned, and you go to state and local, and you go to Massachusetts, you'll get to the Massachusetts open data site. Mm -hmm. And uh, what we've learned is that you have, to, you, sort of, you have to avoid technology just for the sake of technology, and you cannot assume that if you just put it up, uh, people will come. But we've learned some very, very exciting things. We've put up a significant amount of public data on the Massachusetts Open Data site. And most of it is not used, and most people don't even know about it, and most people don't even go to it. But an incredibly innovative uh, pair of individuals from our transportation department, from MassDOT, the That's cool. new MassDOT organization, really ran their, it was sort of like running a campaign. They did an incredible outreach to developers, primarily right down the street at MIT. They held a developers conference, they issued a challenge, they had a competition, and within uh, six hours of releasing the scheduled data for the MBTA and the bus system, we had six new iPhone applications. Do you know how long it would have taken the state <laughs> to have developed those applications? First of all, we wouldn't have had the money for it, and then it would have taken forever, and probably wouldn't have been nearly as good as what the MIT developers were able to uh, produce. What is also really clever, and you can begin to imagine uh, the potential, there are some uh, uh, retail bakeries and coffee shops that have figured out that this transportation data is there. And there are, there's one uh, gentleman who had, I think he's, there's one in here in Cambridge. 
He has three coffee shops, and he's installed in his coffee shop that's right near a bus station, right near a bus stop. He's installed a sign, an electronic sign, that has an automatic feed that will tell you when the next bus is coming right outside his coffee shop. So he sees this as a tremendous business advantage for him because I know I've got six minutes. That's plenty of time to get a cup of coffee. Huge uh, boon for his business. It was worth the investment that he made in this technology to inform citizens. And that's investment that we don't have to make uh, at the state. That saves the state money. So that's just that's one small example. But I think the lesson is it won't just happen. It takes outreach and community, building a community around it, bringing people together. And that's a challenge for us. That's not a role that the government has played before. And we have to figure out, how do we play that role instead of the role of having to build and write all the applications for citizens? Mm -hmm. Huge partnership possibilities. <clears throat> Terry, what do you see again as the major risks now? Well, let me take a little different tack. Okay. And that is that um, I think that the ability to interact in this way puts significant more pressure on making sure that we have a robust infrastructure. Um, it means that we have to ensure that operationally we're running. Um, and then even more important, that operationally we're secure. Um, I think the whole question around cybersecurity certainly was an overused buzzword perhaps for a while and it kind of um, was out there, it was something we were worried about, it sort of you know, quieted down as we were sort of getting control of it, and I think it's really going to come back um, very strongly. We're seeing it already. Um, many of the initiatives that we're talking about in terms of being able to make more information available, some of the inhibitors, for instance, pick healthcare, right, Anish? Um, some of the big concerns there are around security and privacy, and what can you manage with technology, um, but also, what do you have to manage from a policy perspective? Um, for instance, as you start to look at some of these things, we've been looking at what a social media policy means for state employees. What responsibilities do they have now um, as they're speaking in many open forums, in documented forums? Are they speaking for themselves? Mm -hmm. Are they speaking for the state? So there's an education process for them. But even with all of that, there's a process that we all have to be conscious now that as we put this information out, what does it really mean to each of us as individual citizens as well as what does it mean in terms of our role in government? So I do think that it is going to mean pressure um, on some of the boring stuff around how do we just keep things running, but then also how do we keep things secure? Okay, it's about your turn now. Um, we've. We're seeing that the economic conditions are really different. The political climate is really different. The technology is really different. And it's certainly opening up some new things in the way of all of this data with all of these people in partnerships to do new things. Uh, but they're new. And governments are places where risk of things that are new that can have some bad results tend to be very scary. So we need some leadership and some good judgment on all this. This is sort of where we are. Um, <clears throat> there's questions now. Everybody gets one question. It has to end with a question, and it has to be short. But uh, we welcome them. Yes. Uh, hi. So I'm Evan. I'm a Kennedy student from Meckling's class, actually. 
Um, so, my, so, you know, it's fascinating how much data is opening up, but the ability for your average person to leverage it, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a highly technical, well, have become one by default, but I got to go down to the BOE in New York State, you know, get a tab to one that it filed that I then have to put into MySQL that I have to shave four more times until I can get out and do canvases. You, you know what I mean? So it's like, and we discussed the maritime domain, domain awareness case in, in, in uh, Mechling's class where creating metadata schemas that would just enable folks to plug in on APIs in the back end, but just really bring down the level of access to leveraging that data and mixing it up. I was just wondering if either of you folks uh, could, could comment on any initiatives that you see going towards that, or is it still just this, hey, we got it, let's push it out in a zip file kind of attitude? You are uh, absolutely correct, and this is very early on. We're just publishing it in whatever format uh, the data is available today, but um, our chief technology officer in the state has the vision that you just described, and he could describe it better than I, but um, in fact, we are planning to invest in um, a repository that will hold the data and offer it in a much more user-friendly format. Super. Yes. This question is for Anish Chopra. Uh, what is the Obama administration doing with the inventions inside of the U.S. government? I forgot we need to ask you to identify yourself. Oh, sorry, uh, Ken Fletcher. Uh, I just live in the community. Thank you. Hey, uh, welcome, welcome from the community. All right. The question was on what are we doing about inventions right. uh, that we have uh, uh, releasing them to the public. So maybe I'm going to take your question in three parts. Okay. The first part is we have a regulatory regime for how the government uh, manages the commercialization of intellectual property. Normally this is done through the research investments you make into our federal labs. So there is a, there's a regime that describes a process that would allow us to take the Department of Agriculture's research and allow a private company to uh, take that information and actually produce a commercially viable product, and there's a method to do that. How about just uh, inside the government itself through the CTO office? So uh, uh, we really don't have a regulatory regime or a desire to patent or control any of the things that we do. Most all that we do is in an open and collaborative format. So uh, to the extent that we build an application, we are, we've created a position or a place within uh, uh, data.gov to publish the actual tools. Mm -hmm. So you can download all of the tools. Uh, the calculator I mentioned about the 65 calories and the bagel and cream cheese thing, mm -hmm. that's an application that they've deposited on the tools section of the data.gov. The gray area is when the government buys something from the private sector and uses it to achieve a, a policy objective, that intellectual property retains with the company that we purchase it from unless we explicitly have an agreement around the sharing of that information. Do you have a policy to build technology out of the CTO office as a government invention, and what do you do? Oh, with those oh I understand now the question. I do not run an engineering department where we would okay. build these products and services. I serve as a policy advisor to the president. Okay. So, in a nutshell, my job is to traffic in policies, uh, investments in platforms that we look to make, and public private partnerships. So, individual agencies from time to time do take on engineering tasks, and they do work out arrangements to release that as often as they can to the public. The default setting is they release it, but for when a contractor is involved, and then there's individual IP rights that are associated. Thank you. Incremental improvements in terms of policy guidance also. Uh, we need these only as one question, um, but, but that's fine. Yes. 
Uh, Catherine Bracey from the Berkman Center. Uh, Ms. Takai, you said something interesting about uh, working off the example that uh, is set at the federal level, um, but usually we hear that states are the kind of breeding ground for these new ideas that then filter up. And I'm wondering, Anish, if you see any really innovative experimental examples um, at the state or even municipal level that you think can scale up uh, to the federal level. Yeah, in fact, my uh, brother-in-arms, the CIO Vivek Kundra, just earlier uh, last week was with the mayor of San Francisco where they released an open API for their 311 systems. So if you follow government, the closest to citizen uh, service is at the municipality level. So many uh, cities have established a 311 service where you call and say that a pothole needs to be repaired. San Francisco has led a consortium of other cities to publish a, a common API that would allow developers to build new and innovative applications on top of these multiple municipal programs. That's an incredible innovation and we clearly want to benefit from that. We also launched a website, and this is not the coolest name, partner4solutions.gov. Uh, in the current fiscal year, we have $40 million as an investment fund, a seed fund, to find promising ideas at the state and local level that can help us capture waste, fraud, and abuse in the human services domain. And we're welcoming ideas to be submitted on partner4solutions.gov so that we can fund, you know, seed, demonstrate, and scale the best ideas to reduce waste, fraud, and abuse. If these are to scale up, Terry, would you possibly see the San Francisco initiative becoming a California? initiative? Yes and no, Jerry. I think uh, the challenge is to really uh, be able to bring very independent areas of government. Um, mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, I think in some cases you can do these things on a state level. In other cases, they're things that need to seed more broadly. Uh, and you really do need, you have such a variability of technology knowledge at the city and county level um, that sometimes, for instance, on something like a 311 initiative, um, it's actually going to take hold in the larger communities nationally before it's necessarily going to be a California initiative. So I, that's one of the challenges, I think, around you know, looking at things more broadly. Yes. My name is uh, Dave Pollack. Um, where I uh, have worked is important to my question. I worked for many years as a middle manager at the Department of Housing and Urban Development in Washington, um, U.S. Department of HUD. Um, in the homeless assistance area. And then I went uh, about a dozen years ago to a consulting firm also working in homeless assistance. Uh, the office I used to work at in HUD, the Office of Special Needs Assistance Programs, wanted to have a, a dynamic site, website, that they could use to get information out, to provide resources, technical assistance, et cetera. And they tried for two years to get HUD internally to be able to do that, and finally gave up and, and were able to make the case that HUD systems simply were un incapable because they were so old to make a difference. So they contracted with my company, fortunately. And, and as a result, we have, and they now have a very dynamic, really state-of-the-art website that has made a tremendous difference in communications around the country. And so my, my question is, what is the possibility of this happening more generally? And I'm not saying this because I work for a consulting firm, but just generally in getting out, I mean, getting the new technology in, as a middle manager in HUD, I would never have been able to pull it off. It's only by going out and contracting for the technology that allows HUD to do all these things now that's, that's made this huge jump uh, possible. So contracting out, what is 
a, a very brief answer, I would say, by uh, establishing a management directive, as we had done in December at whitehouse.gov open, we've now charged each of the federal agent, the cabinet level agencies to publish open government plans that instill this culture and discipline within their own organization. Everyone today here can visit whitehouse.gov open and submit an idea on HUD, NASA, you name it, even in my own office at OSTP. So every federal agency, if you go to the agency domain slash open and click on submit an idea, right now tell them from the American people what you want uh, the agency to do to embrace the principles of open government. And uh, those are going to be then adjudicated into an open government plan. So we, we've decided to take the tack that, yes, we want to have demonstration sites, but we also want to have a more widely adopted culture change and the management directive that we published in December is meant to do that. And I don't know if states have, some states are getting there. I don't know where we are in Massachusetts or California, but we want to make it so the default setting switches to no, moves to yes, and here's the context for how. Yes. Hi, uh, my name is Ghansham Tiwari. I'm a joint degree student. Uh, my question is with respect to the policy. When you look at the two superpowers, United States and China, uh, on one side, we are moving towards, in the United States, we are moving towards a much more open government where all this data is put online. Uh, whereas in China, you, you see a different national level policy. So what challenges do you face in doing this trade-off, looking at the global nature of this issue? We actually view this as a key policy priority within our international diplomacy. Secretary Clinton calls this 21st century statecraft. On a personal level, I participated in a delegation where we had about a dozen CEOs from the tech sector, from the CEO of eBay to the founder of Twitter uh, and others, to join uh, in a delegation to visit the Russian uh, uh, ministry, uh, a series of individuals within Russia who were looking at how they could approach the questions of e-governance. And it was a very important policy opportunity to take the principles of open government that we've adopted in the US and describe them in a context for best practice sharing. So Secretary Clinton has asked that we move these principles into the core of our international diplomacy efforts. And I gotta tell you, on a personal level, I've probably had half a dozen countries call to say, how can we copy or replicate or build off of these open government principles? We'd like to share and, and, and reuse these ideas. So we actually think it could be a global movement in this direction. Well, I think there are operational issues as well, um, just in terms of privacy and in terms of data protection. Um, one of the things that we're going to start to see as we move more into cloud computing and as we look at that as really an opportunity to change operationally, um, we now are looking at that. It's really a global initiative. Uh, you can't say anymore, well, I'm going to have my cloud in this location. Uh, it's really going to be something on an international scale. And so it, there is an, ap an operational component as well uh, as the, you know, the question of diplomacy. And it's going to be around where do we get the kinds of services at a state level that we want that's cost effective but yet is secure. And so I think that's going to be an issue going forward um, you know, as we really look at some of the ways these new technologies are taking us into different realms that we haven't ever had to look at before. Mm -hmm. Yes. <clears throat> Uh, hi, I'm Seth, a student at the Kennedy School in MPP, and also very involved in the Gov2OPEC here. Um, so my uh, question is, we've been dealing uh, a lot this past year with trying to get our peers excited about all these new technological tools, 
And you know, people are very focused and interested in their specific policy sphere. And I'm sure this is a, a sort of a mindset that you encounter a lot when you're talking to people in government. So how do you get people excited? And I was wondering if you could give us your sort of like pitch, like get us excited. Like if this is your, this is your opportunity. <laughs> and this is your state, rock and roll. <laughs> what do you want to get excited about? All the work you're doing, as if you're communicating to someone who has no idea what a CIO is. I mean, I had a lot. Of, I talked to a lot of people today. I said, "Oh, you know, all these people are coming, CIO, and the, the, what's a CIO?" Or like I said, CTO, and you know, chief, chief technology officer, I mean, chief transportation officer. And I was like, "No, no, no." <laughs> so I, I mean, so uh, help help us communicate uh, what you're trying to do, uh, because we think when we're working in technology in the future will only be successful if all of our peers are literate and, and are excited about what we're doing. And I, I think it's sort of similar in the spheres you're working in. Wow, that's a, a tough challenge. I would love for you to help us, because I said to Jerry, seriously, you want us to talk to people? Who wants to come and listen to us talk about technology and government? So this is not a strong point um, of mine. Um, and part of it is because of what Terry mentioned earlier. A lot of what we're focused right now in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts is building a solid foundation of infrastructure. And it is invisible. People do not see it. I was really sympathetic to the last gentleman's question because no doubt HUD has a big, old, 25-year-old workhorse of a system that They've probably tried to bolt on a bunch of web interfaces to, and they've taken it as far as they can take it. And it's really hard for the government to be nimble and responsive and to be innovative when we're saddled with 25-year-old systems and infrastructure, you know, where you know state police have to rely on you know 56k speeds. So a lot of what we're focused on is building robust infrastructure. So I really think, at least in the Commonwealth, that the really exciting stuff is two years away for us, you know, because we're not we need that infrastructure to be agile and to be able to be nimble and to be able to open up even more data in formats that others can innovate on. Generally, what I do uh, in a setting, customer setting, is first of all to remind everybody that, and certainly in Anne's case, uh, for those of you that are citizens of the state of Massachusetts, you pay her salary I for work, number one. That's right. I work for you. So I think that is an important uh, thing for us all to remember is that the money that, for instance, I spend in California comes out of the taxes. And, and I think you've got to make it personal so that, first of all, people realize that that that's an important part of what you do. You spend that money and how much money you spend um, and what you're trying to do to spend that money the most effectively. Um, and you're trying to actually reduce, in some cases, the amount of money. The second is, I think, around the citizen-facing services. I mean, as much as, as Ann says, we're trying to make things robust and make sure, for instance, I had a three-hour outage at DMV offices this week. Uh, didn't make me the all-time most favorite person on a Monday morning when they couldn't get their driver's licenses. But you end up having to refer to those things that impact citizens the most, where they have to stand in line, where they're most unhappy with you, and then try to translate that into the ways that you're trying to make it better. 
Um, those are at least in, you know, some of the things I know that you know, I try to do to try to bring it down to a very personal level and to get people to understand that there's somebody in this big government bureaucracy that's actually making some of those services happen. Can I, can I build yeah. a little bit on, I'm sorry, no, uh, because uh, and those of you who are thinking about going into government and are interested in technology in government, I have to tell you, um, when the governor called and asked me to take this position, I never wanted to work for the state. I never wanted to be a CIO again. That's funny. Well, I had that same, same situation. You know, CIO, many people say, stands for career is over yeah. because we're, we only get famous when really bad things happen. It's a very uh, stressful kind of a job. So I've been uh, CIO here in the Commonwealth for two and a half years. I love it because of exactly what Terry said, because of the impact you can have. We have to manage and lead enormous change and major investments in technology and run systems that, at the end of the day, at the end of all of these systems, they're having a huge impact on real people's lives, whether it's at the RMV or whether it's in health and human services or whether it's helping homeless people. There are, it, you can't work anywhere else in, a, in this kind of a technology job and, and have the kind of impact that you're able to have in government. Anish. We, we established three basic principles. The first, to quote Brandeis, sunlight is the best disinfectant. So if you want a government that's more accountable, you'd build on these capabilities. Second, the president often says that knowledge is widely dispersed. So if you want to solve big problems, you're going to want to tap into the expertise of the American people and hear from all of their views in order to come up with the best uh, strategy. And then last, the president says, to tackle the big problems of the day, we need an all-hands-on-deck approach. If you're going to get an all-hands-on-deck approach, you need a technology uh, framework that would enable the kind of collaborations that are necessary to tackle the big issues on uh, clean energy economy, bending the healthcare cost curve, ensuring that we return the number one in the position in the world of the share of our population with adult uh, college degree. So when you describe these foundational principles, you cannot achieve them were it not for a, a, a capacity and technology that would enable them. And that's the pillar of our, of our work. Sorry to take another 20 seconds, but uh, <coughs> the, the professorial side of this uh, would, would suggest that most people do recognize that individual entertainment and personal lives have been changed by the technology. Most people will give you that one. What a lot of people don't step back and, and see is that for a long period of time, something like per capita income and the productivity in the society in general has been a big deal. And they don't recognize that the big deal that is changing productivity is technology, the single biggest factor. And therefore, if you care about a future that's gonna be different from and hopefully better than the present, you've gotta care about these issues. And then you gotta care about who participates in it because the equity issues are also determined by a network that can share things around the globe in ways it didn't before, and it's scary, basically, what is happening. I think that's really important. And then the third thing I would say is, since all this is controversial, being able to trust and see what your government does is very important, and there are new capacities here that you've talked about a lot that are just fundamental and need to be understood and worked on. Hi. Yes. Excuse me, I'm Yasmin Fodil, an MPP student here at the Kennedy School. Um, so 
with the open government directive and sort of putting all this data online and, and increasing the use of social media platforms, it kind of implies, and in fact in the open government directive says that you want to increase participation, citizens and government. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, who is supposed to manage that participation and if it's not always in the technology offices, how do you create? Oh, that's a lose. Culture not, change. No, 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 you hit the nail right on the head. So. Uh, you are uh, precisely right that the uh, participation component, first of all, it's been policy forever that we have open meetings. You just have to physically show up or maybe pick up the phone and dial in where you can't really communicate in the same way. But technology enables us to have that connectivity and participation on a wide range of issues. So healthcare IT standards, about as obscure a topic as you're going to get, you have to be a, you know, hundred plus thousand dollar a year programmer on the budget of some big technology company to afford to be flown to Washington to contribute in these big sessions. Yet these folks are defining what it means to give you a copy of an electronic copy of your medical record. So all of this was being done technically open, but the only people who could afford to be a part of it were those who could like the insiders who kind of knew how to run that game. We said, no way. Openness means moderating an environment that gets people to engage. We had a facilitated dialogue, we called it an online forum. For three weeks, we said we're gonna have structured conversation. Hundreds of doctors who never would have thought to go to a meeting, couldn't have the time because they are in their practice, but felt they could contribute in a blog post and could comment and vote up and down other people's ideas. The degree to which we got feedback from the population at large, in particular the physician community, really helped to inform the regulations that we ultimately proposed. And that's what we mean. So did the technology department run that? No way. A policy lead engaged and shaped the forum. A technology person certainly turned on the blog with comments, but that's easy. So we absolutely call for in the directive a leadership group within the agencies that is absolutely includes new media, includes technology, and a senior policy person who can translate how these tools can advance our policy objectives. So that is a critical component. If this is a technology initiative only, we would have lost on day one. Hi, uh, Wafiq Farag. Uh, I have a small company here in Cambridge. <laughs> My question is really twofold. And uh, I like first that the openness of the data. But as you know, he was asking the question, CIO is all about information. So the, the first part of the question is, if you are going to, as a policy, open and adopt a model like the iPhone, where people can, for example, uh, you know, like here in Massachusetts, can actually write applications that use the data and might use also private data from companies that let, you know, benefit the end you know, citizens. Sure. And then how do you manage this? Would all, if you do that, then I think this would be great <laughs> because I've been working on this platform. It's a platform for information versus just a platform for data. The second part uh, is how do you manage security for that? Because that's a big deal. <laughs> if you start allowing people to write applications, uh, integrate different data models, uh, government data with private data, and uh, you know, how to manage those two things. So I want to clarify one thing quickly. When we publish data and enable entrepreneurs to repurpose that data, it is on their risk in their business model for their purpose. So if you wish to consume the nutrition data, 
and create a video game that you want to sell for 50 bucks to kids that has, by the way, you know, extra bonus points if you eat the healthy thing as opposed to the unhealthy thing, have at it. We make a policy judgment that if you want to commercialize that information, it's the American people's information. Have it. Where it gets complicated is if we want to encourage others to build applications for the purposes of government operations. Here, I would turn to uh, Terry for feedback because we need to have raw, strong IT governance on how we manage the applications that are announced. And I defer to Terry to comment on how the rules of the road are for managing government applications for internal use as opposed to having you commercialize what we publish to do whatever you want. I have two comments on that. I think, first of all, um, the first part of what Anish talked about is a major cultural change for government. Um, it's kind of take the brave pills and um, <laughs> you know, take the risk that as you put your data out there, you can't predict necessarily how it's going to be used externally. Um, and I think that is one of the risks. It's one of the areas that um, you know, we're out there, but we're a little worried about it. But there's no turning back, let me put it that way. Um, to Anisha's point, in terms of applications that we use internally, um, that is one of the areas where um, we do have to use our standard processes and procedures. Um, we do go through our normal procurement processes. We do go through our normal security processes. And I think, as I mentioned before, that is another area where I think we are going to have to continue to tighten up from a security perspective and make sure that our platforms are secure, back to what Ann was saying, so that we can turn these applications around quickly without having to look at the technology every time, um, but that we're doing it within a set of ground rules so we can assure the privacy and protection of all of the information that we have from all of you. You know, it's interesting um, when we talk about security, um, one of the reasons that's so important for us as the states because we really are the custodians of a significant amount of information in a geographic area. So we have your information at the state level, whereas if I was a bank, for instance, I might have as much information, but it's much more dispersed. And we have to take that, that responsibility very seriously, and I'm sure, Ann, you've can got I, the same. Can I yeah. uh, comment same specifically thing. on this? Because there's um, an exciting new public-private partnership here in the Commonwealth exactly um, addressing what Terry just mentioned around cybersecurity. So there's a new partnership around an advanced cybersecurity center where it is government and the major industries and businesses in the Commonwealth all housed together in a center where each of us is donating two of our strongest security people and they go to the cybersecurity center and they do their work there together every week. Um, it's actually housed at MITRE which is a very important partner for this. But it is the first time there has been sharing of cyber data between the private sector and between government. And it's just an incredibly exciting new relationship that we're hopeful is really gonna help us uh, stay ahead. Because I, I also agree with what Terry said, things kind of died down but you know, I think we're, we're once again on full alert in this private, we're sharing data like it's never been shared before for security reasons. Yes. Hi, I'm Ari, I'm just a member of the community. Um, every day I work with uh, criminal data, which unbeknownst to most people is compo 
compiled from over a thousand databases and it's just a mess. And it's good to hear that you guys are consolidating and working on those efficiencies that will really help us in industry. Um, but I was wondering what you do between states to help create efficiencies there, whether it's on criminal data or air traffic transportation and stuff like that, and what the federal government is doing to provide the resources, not for the technology, as you answered before, it's not about improving the technology per se, but providing the leadership to create intelligent systems and create the best systems. You know, this is the, uh this is, this is the sleeper efficiency issue of 2010. Uh, one of the frustrations for me is that when any of these two states build an IT system for Medicaid, Medicaid the federal government sports the tab at 90% and it's 120 plus million dollars a pop. But there's very little shareability and reusability of the underlying application code. That same is true in almost every one of the federally funded state administered. So when I was a Virginia Secretary of Technology, my memory is 60% of our funding for IT was actually federally funded, state administered. I may be off a little bit, Jerry, on the benchmark, yeah, but right. close. So we at the federal level have not done a good job enabling the reusability and shareability of core source material so that it doesn't cost us $120 million a pop for every individual state thing. So uh, uh, Vivek and I are committed to this particular problem. We don't have any magic bullet on this area, but uh, the partnerforsolutions.gov I was describing earlier was a website where we are beginning to find ways in which we could seed uh, and scale, hopefully what works, these uh, reusable objects that could, uh, that could essentially lower the cost. Now, on a more obscure level, we have adopted an information exchange model in criminal justice called NEEM which is a model that allows us to have a common architecture for what a criminal intervention uh, is described as. So every justice department, every, every uh, state and local uh, kind of uh, 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 justice official uh, is, is essentially finding a common way to share that report with each other. And that, that's been now widely adopted as our first case study. And they say it has saved 40% of the time it normally takes to produce. I think the challenge is for uh, the, particularly if you look at data sharing and secondly at the common application piece that Anish is talking about is that, first of all, I, I do absolutely agree. We're starting to see much more data sharing in the area of criminal justice, soon to be healthcare. Um, so there are areas where we're starting to see a lot of breakthroughs in that sharing of data. Um, but in the sharing of applications, it gets back to a prior question around what's really the um, innovative source of ideas. And you know, the process before, as Anish well knows, um, had been, well, let's fund the states and then we'll spawn all these best ideas. And while that has certainly some value and merit, it also does create this one-off problem that Anish is talking about. And so I think our challenge is not unlike any effort where you're trying to get maximum use of your dollars, but at the same time, trying to get innovation um, and it's really that challenge around having enough seed money out there that you get the best ideas so everybody doesn't have the same mediocre solution. Um, so you want enough innovation so that you're getting best solutions, but you also want to leverage your expenditure. And I think that's a challenge, and it's just something that we're going to have to continue to work on. 
um, in terms of how you use technology. And, and that's not a purely government issue. I mean, that's just, a, I think, a technology issue around, you know, where is the, the innovation sort of at the, um, at the end of being, you know, able to provide benefit and standardization actually is the best use of dollars. That tension between innovation and standardization really central to this operation. I have time for two more questions. Yes. Hi, uh, my name is Clarence Song. I am in the MPP program and I'm editor of the Harvard Asian American Policy Review. We're celebrating our 20th anniversary this year. One of the uh, topics of discussion is, you know, the underrepresentation. When I was a student in 1997, I had a published article in the AAPR. So oh, yeah? Kudos to the 20th <laughs> That's great. Well, thank You're you. their hero. Yeah. No, no, it's just uh, a great journal. Allowed yeah. me to, uh, to share the research. Go sure. ahead. Well, one of the topics that we've been addressing is the underrepresentation of Asian Americans in public service. Given the number of talented Asian Americans in the technology field, I'm just curious about your um, thoughts on you know, how to attract more Asian Americans into public service. The uh, overall numbers look fairly favorable when you take a, take a look at the, in the technology domain, if I were to just sort of rattle off the top positions across the administration, you're going to find a Do fairly it. healthy number of, of, of Asian Americans. Uh, just off the top of my head, uh, the CTO at HHS, Todd Park, uh, Vivek Kundra, the CIO, myself, and then you go down uh, at the new media level and all the agencies. We actually are finding a couple of interesting trends. Trend number one, we are, we are uh, because of the president is an inspiring figure for so many, there are those who are willing to give up a great deal of economic uh, stature to swap in for the opportunity to serve, because you have to basically relinquish everything financial that you own to come into government. <laughs> Uh, and so people are giving away stock options, and they're, they're basically giving away all of their financial uh, asset base because they want to serve the president. And so basically we're asking people and recruiting people who are extremely talented to come in. And there are a very strong, uh, diverse set of individuals, and, and Asian Americans are not underrepresented in that category. Uh, and then I would say the second thing is that there is this new concept of innovation and technology. Not, the CIO role has now had about a decade's worth of maturity in terms of what is a CIO, although maybe the colleague earlier said there isn't one. But the CTO role is a relatively new one. So people are trying to figure out exactly what, is it a new product development role? Is it a, you know, a emerging technology? Is it a, a policy advisor? How do we think of it? So it's attracting new voices that have not thought of public service before because they didn't want to be in a traditional setting. So uh, I, I operate as a, a man without portfolio, meaning I have no management or operating responsibilities. I'm an advisor to the president and I work on these issues, as are these other CTOs that we're seating at the State Department, at the Veterans Administration, at NASA, and at HHS, education. Those individuals are able to bring new perspectives and that's a very diverse bunch. African Americans are in the group, uh, women are in the group, uh, Asian Americans, and it's a pretty, pretty impressive uh, roster of, of America. Hi there. Uh, my name is Bonnie Shaw. Uh, I work in online community building with a range of nonprofit, corporate, and government clients. Um, I find that a lot of my work revolves around change management, working with organizations, um, and kind of taking people through a process of engagement to get them to really embrace the new technologies that they're working with internally. Um, and I just wondered if you could talk a little more about that. You mentioned 
the need for a really strong leadership. Uh, but if there are any other ways that um, you're kind of helping to mold that layer of clay rather than break through it. Um, and also, if you're seeing any tensions, given that a lot of the people with the skills in, in new media and, and social media and this kind of new technology are quite often a lot younger, uh, if you're seeing any tensions in the workplace and how you're kind of working with that. I see, uh, I'll make this observation. The closer you are to solving a policy problem for the senior most principal, whether the president, the governor, or the secretary, the less you have to worry about the change management discipline because if your outcome's focused and you're relatively agnostic as to what path gets you to the outcome, then you're passionate about the outcome and you're welcoming of new and emerging ideas as part of a portfolio of ideas to achieve the outcome. If you are uh, distant from a policy priority, so let's just make it simple. Mobilizing people to drive towards this apps for healthy kids idea that the first lady announced today, no change management required. People were lining up. I don't care if you were 60 or 70 years old in the agency all the way down to the youngest folks. People are like, how can I help? Let me be there. I'm there tomorrow. What can I do? And everybody has a role to play. But if you're talking about I'm going to modernize the IT infrastructure, to consolidate data centers and change the way we manage the back office operations, that's fairly distant from the governor's top priority. And you need to have massive investment in change management because nobody wants to do that. You lose your job, you change what you do. It's really painful. So my observation is, uh, thankfully, I'm on the CTO side. The CIO side has to live in that world. No offense to my friends. Uh, but the CTO side uh, has a little bit less of that responsibility. Uh, we turn to our CIOs to make sure that that stuff works. Which is why Anish and has a more fun job. <laughs> <laughs> you know? We're all fun jobs. Because <laughs> I was going to say, actually, in the operational role, I probably spend more than 50%, maybe close to 75% of my time on change management. Mm -hmm. um, it's all about people. I got plenty of technology. Um, sometimes I have too much technology, actually. Um, and it really is about change management. It's about change management, as Anne can attest, in the technology groups, as Anish says, to get them to embrace the things that we're doing operationally. Um, it's change management to get the uh, departmental folks and the, the actual folks that are implementing the policies to understand how technology can make a difference. And it's change management at the senior level as well. Um, and all of that takes time. It takes making the change their idea, uh, which takes an enormous amount of energy and a lot of creativity, because you have to sort of take what you're trying to get to anyway and figure out how it becomes their idea and not your idea. Uh, and, and that's really a huge part, I think, of, and wouldn't you agree, of what oh, we do? Absolutely. And like Terry, I spend most of my time on change management, a uh, vast majority. And it would be impossible to overstate how difficult it is in government. You know, other, any large organization, it's difficult, but it's particularly difficult in government. You, what do you call it? The clay what? Clay, clay. layer? The layer of clay. Layer of clay. Uh, we call them the weebies. You know, this, this layer of people who, when they see a new CIO and a new administration come in, say, 
We be here before you got here. We be here after you leave. And they are this layer who um, see the top turn over, over and over again. Here comes a new administration, and they're going to have the latest fads, and they're just going to recycle all those ideas that the others had, or the new administration's going to come in, and they're going to take us in the exact opposite direction just because they don't want to do anything that the previous administration did. So this layer of management is critical. They're the ones that actually keep government running and operating, but again, just as Terry said, you have to engage them. They have to be part of the change. They have to see what's in it for them, but also what's in it for the services they're delivering, first and foremost, to citizens. So really engaging that layer, that layer is absolutely critical. And it really helps to have an economic crisis. I think coming full circle to what's different about this time that we're in, the severe, severe budget cuts that we've been going through in every part of the Commonwealth have uh, resulted in more collaboration and people working together and people solving problems than I can say I've ever seen anywhere in my career. It's really, it's been impressive and it's really helped us to move uh, major initiatives through major change um, at, a, at a really very high pace for, for any organization, not just for government. May, may I, I just want to share sure. one last story, because I think this is, th this is probably the, the, the point where you either feel like you've left saddened or concerned that this is really hard, or you're inspired that we're going to make a difference. So I'm, I don't know where you are on the fence, and I want to do what I can to convince you that we're on the precipice of success. One of the big, biggest challenges we have in uh, Washington is processing veterans' benefits claims. There isn't a person on this planet who doesn't wish everything be done for our veterans at the highest standard. Yet it takes 180, 200 days for them to tell us how disabled they are and for someone in our offices to say, yes, you are, and here's your entitlement. Why? This problem has been attempted to be addressed for 30, 40 years. We've had every technology consultant known to mankind hired to come in and do this with all the change management in the world. I have physically been in the benefit center and it's been so much so that they have to buy two monitors because they're running eight different applications simultaneously just to administer the benefit. But President in August visited the Veterans of Foreign Wars and gave a speech and he said, you know what, we're gonna fix this problem. But rather than rely on the consultants and the IT change management and the professionals who service, I'm going to ask the 19,000 frontline workers in the VA. Because of emerging technologies, we had a free platform that would allow us to have an, a voting system where you could present an idea, vote your idea up and down. And he said, I want the 57 field offices in the VA to surface the best of those ideas and submit a two to three page business plan. We're going to have a business plan competition in Washington. Secretary Shinseki personally sat through the top 20 of those business plans. These are average everyday veterans employees who never felt like they had a voice on anything. The most tragic and inspiring answers of these ideas was that most of them didn't cost a nickel. In fact, the, the people in the administration said, we actually have a, a, a reason you have to do this widget thing. Let's stop doing that thing. You can do that? Yeah, we'll do that. So the secretary, so literally from August to September, 
7,000 out of the 19,000 frontline workers engaged. Then each of the field offices submitted their business plans, shared them with each other. They came to DC in, in December, presented them. Craig Newmark from Craigslist was one of our celebrity judges, you know, to make it cool and hip. And uh, we got 10 of those ideas funded and approved. Half of them don't really need any money. They just needed policy change. And they are in implementation mode now. The president said, do this in August, and we are in implementation now. No major, big IT change management consulting firm from the crowd spending the millions. Just because we listened to the frontline workers and we had emerging technologies that would allow us to do that an easier way than if we had a suggestion box you know, in the old days. Mm -hmm. That is why some of this is starting to tip towards inspiring it can happen, as opposed to, geez, oh, Pete, the clay and the weebies, and they're, they're there, but we're starting to see that tip. So please have hope uh, if we can convince you otherwise. <laughs> so we've... <clears throat> We have covered some of this territory. It is a different time now. We see some possibilities and some things to avoid, but I'd like to give our panelists one last opportunity to give us some parting thoughts. And then you should let me actually turn back to you and just run, run down the panel this way. I would say this. <clears throat> the opportunities at this stage are to see this transition from fad to deeply embedded into the culture of how we operate. And we are here. We are just starting to see that happen with the policy that we published in December and the activity that's happening at the agencies. But we really need the next, rain, the next round of uh, uh, Kennedy School graduates to come in to Washington, prepped to, to tip that further. As you come into Washington and, and, and as an employee or as a contractor coming in, you're gonna start to see all of this opportunity Find the one or two interesting things that you want to make real, not in a year's time, but in 90 days' time. Pick whatever topic it may be. You want to create a little interesting application, but you're not a technology person? Find a friend who's willing to help you figure out a way to create that widget to say, turn that infant car safety seat data into something that Nishit, the, a new father, can, can use in making a car seat decision. Figure out a way in which you have a policy passion for something, whatever that something is. Connect to the resources that we're starting to make available in this movement towards a more effective and open government. And find a way to translate that into action now. There are so many prizes and competitions and challenges. We just created the legislative authority for that in our, sorry, regulatory authority for that. We published guidance on prizes. Help us find people who are gonna compete and participate in these things because we're going to start to see the enthusiasm and the uh, outcome of this. I don't know if it's going to rival a campaign outcome in terms of enthusiasm from what you saw both in the, the Patrick campaign and the Obama campaign, but we're going to start to see more and more of that. But it requires you to, who are listening to this conversation, if you think there's anything interesting, pick one area and find a way you can commercialize or make real some of those changes so that you can convince yourself, wait a minute, I created that Federal Register XML weird thing on the iPhone and it's kind of neat and fun. And it's not like it costs you a lot of money to design and, and, and participate. So, so please give us a shot, not just listening to the forum tonight, but take it as an assignment. Maybe the Gov20 pick is an assignment. I want to know at the end of this semester, what is the app that you all have built around this, or at least spec'd out for someone else to build? We'll be there to help. But we need to have your participation.
that's my, I guess, final, final observation. That was a great pitch. Um, that's a hard one to follow. I, no, I would, I, I've had a long career in uh, technology, and I've known Jerry for a long time. So <laughs> what he said at the beginning somewhat resonated to me that uh, for over 30 years in technology, to a large extent, it's been overhyped. You know, it's, we've had a history of overpromising, of under-delivering. And yet, I really do believe um, in my uh, time now in government, this truly is a unique moment in time, a really unique moment in time because of the combination of things that we've been talking about this, this evening, because of this, these new leaders that we have who do get it, and there are more and more of those all the time, because of new technologies. For 30 years, we have been hearing about applications that would, where you could reuse parts of it. For, people have been talking about Lego light applications so that we wouldn't have to build different, in, in every industry, they have been talking about this. The technologies today are making it real. Service-oriented architecture sounds really boring, but in 30 years we've been talking about it, we're actually building now applications with reusable parts that are going to address some of these things. Web 2.0 is real and it's exciting, and open data has limitless potential. So I usually try to turn down the little height meters because over history I've found, you know, over and over again we've overpromised, we've underdelivered, people aren't going to listen to us anymore. But even when I talk to the 2,000 people who work really hard on technology and the Commonwealth, I'm, I'm beginning to tell them th this because I, I believe it, that right now we're in the midst of the most transformative period when it comes to technology and the Commonwealth's history. And I think it's, it's a period that will be the most transformative period for some time to come. And it is because of the convergence of all of these different factors. So it's an incredibly exciting time uh, to be doing what we're all doing, and particularly exciting because of the potential impact. At the end of the day, it's having, going to have and continue to have just positive impacts on people's lives. Terry. Hard act to follow here with the, so let me just close with uh, a couple of thoughts. I think that uh, the challenge that we all have is that government is changing, certainly at a local level and a state level. Um, the deficits that we're facing are not short term. Uh, the demands that citizens are looking at and looking for government to provide are changing dramatically. Um, and so we are going to see uh, transformation, I think, in the way that government operates overall. Um, and some of that is operational and some of it is the interaction. Um, and regardless of what role you take, whether it's a policy role, whether it's an operational role, um, by virtue of being here, you have decided that public service is important. Um, and I think as Ann said, public service is important. It's really critical, it's really critical uh, that all of you are here and that you really see the value of that contribution. And so my request of all of you is that as you go, whichever way you take, whether it's a pure technology role, whether it's a public policy role, whether it's an operational role, um, that you take to heart the things that Anish and Ann have said, and that technology will be a part of your ability to deliver 
on whatever way you choose to deliver from a public service perspective. Uh, and that they're, that's going to be a part of what you do. It's not going to be a mystery. It's not going to be a challenge. You don't have to be a technology expert. But it's a part of that change that you're going to, going to want to deliver and that you want to deliver by virtue of being in this program and by virtue of choosing this as a career. Um, and certainly for those of us, we look forward to working with you going forward. Uh, in many cases, you're going to pick up the mantle from us in terms of moving this forward. Uh, and we thank you for that, and we wish you all the best with that as well. There's some passion in this, uh, on this panel. And as we look backwards, uh, I think it's very interesting that many people don't observe how important uh, you know, Bob Kahn and Vint Cerf were to the world. When TCPIP uh, became the internet, it changed a lot of things. And for government, in many ways, the fundamental thing it changed is to allow a lot of us working for the government to deliver services very accessibly. But the next revolution, and I think it is here now, is not from us to you. It's really us with you. It's an engagement time. And we're delighted that uh, you've been here. And I would like to thank our panel very much for, for this day.